0: Hey, everybody. This is part two of our conversation with Drew Ford. If you haven't caught part one yet, make sure you go back and listen to that. But otherwise, thanks for joining us for part two of this conversation with Drew Ford. Welcome to the Musician Centric Podcast. We are two freelance violists living and laughing our way through conversations that explore what it means to be a professional musician in today's world. I'm Steph. And I'm Liz. And we're
1: so glad you've joined us. Let's dive in. you're describing this whole like crossover connotation the culture of that sentiment that you know you couldn't make it that sentiment is perpetuated by all the people who aren't making it like like you said <laughs> none of us are make none of us are making it and we all perpetuate that sentiment at an early age and i, I had that belief within myself for a while but the truth is my ability to play classical music is Better because I don't only play classical music anymore. That is a hundred percent true. Or my skill set, I, I use this example when I talk to students about quartet music, because my quartet likes to play music by living composers, and we do so at least one piece on every program we perform. And it's a different, it's just a different vibe. There's different skills that are needed than are needed to play a Mendelssohn quartet. And when we first started out, all we wanted to do was play like Mendelssohn and, you know, Beethoven, and all this stuff. And we're like, you know, we're never going to be able to find a place in the market with this. Right. We're mm-hmm. fine at it but we're not particularly great at it it's just like something we were trained to do now when we go back last year we did a we did a commission and then we played mendelssohn and we tied the whole program together and it was all like cultivated in this way but when we played that quartet i listened back to the recording i'm like oh my god we're like a hundred percent freer as musicians playing mendelssohn than we were five years ago not pushing ourselves to play this other music that's different and has its own place right now in the musical community and I think that's so true even just like you mentioned in the extra classical article skills that musicians need to be extra classical and one of the things you mentioned is improv and we've talked actually quite a bit this year about Mm. improv and those kinds of skills I can only imagine that they make you Mm. an infinitely better classical musician because you have an understanding of the music that wasn't there if you don't have that skill, right?
2: It's so true. I can't play classical music now without thinking, oh man so since we violas are playing the major seventh, we should probably be a little stronger because yeah. it creates the t- it creates that tension against the tonic. Or if we're playing the minor third, we need to make sure that we also are present so the minor mode really yeah. sounds like. Just understanding the theory of it is like so critical, yeah. but not yes. classical music is. theory. It's jazz so theory, it's so good.
0: Is that something that you were trained in, jazz? No. Okay, so tell us no. about how that evolved.
2: YouTube. Hey, YouTube can be a great teacher. <laughs> at- <laughs> YouTube. <laughs> I, I, I am a student of YouTube. I'm a student of YouTube. So I watch a lot of I watch a lot of musicians on YouTube who are not string players. I don't watch any string players actually. I watch a lot of uh, guitarists and pianists and how they talk about jazz and how they talk about improvisation. I was just watching a video on tritone subs last night and I was like <laughs> kinda get it, but I still don't really <laughs> I really don't understand it. It's just, it's just so divorced from what we do here. So now I'm like, I go back and I practice and I'm like, oh, these are tritone shapes. Mm-hmm. Oh, this is a mm-hmm. uh, major seventh shape, chordal shape. And then when I play Bach, I'm realizing, oh, if I just write jazz theory with Bach, I totally understand what's going on. So if you look at my manuscript now, I've just got like, oh, this is a, this is a B7 that goes to an E7 that goes to a D diminished that goes back to E yes. major. Oh, there we go. That's what he meant. Like, oh, <laughs> A Neapolitan,
1: <laughs> can find a Neapolitan every once in a while.
2: Oh, yeah, Neapolitan, <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly. <sighs> it's a flat, tube. Thank you, you know. very much.
2: No, it, it just means nothing. With, when it's divorced from the playing. And I think that the way we're taught in the classical realm is like, here is theory, and you're gonna do your Schenkerian analysis and you're yes. gonna write down the chord shapes away from your instrument. Rather than <sighs> And then there's
1: it. instrumental technique, yeah. and like the two are are totally separate from each other. That is really true. It's crazy.
2: You gotta we got we have to be more we're so siloed. I think that's the conclusion. We are so particularly siloed and specialized that we're actually blind. And I think that if we kind of like remove the blind. Minders a little bit, we really seek the context a little bit more and it makes us more powerful. Maybe yeah. we're not Ray Chen or Augustine Hadlich or or Hillary Hahn or yo Ma or Alyssa Weilerstein, right? Maybe we're not there, but like that doesn't mean we're not valid and we can't like really mm-hmm. p- make beautiful mm-hmm, music. For sure.
0: So you're going into a lot of these educational organizations and talking with students. Is that what you end up doing when you go to these places?
2: I've been I've been over the past decade of making content. I, I will get periodically invited to go give talks at schools about entrepreneurship or about just my perspective of being a professional mm-hmm. musician and I just uh-huh. try to tell kids the truth. You know, I'm not trying to like, oh, it's going to be great. You're just going to make <laughs> once so you win much your money job. once you win your audition. That's not, you've got to, or if you get that, you get your DMA and then you go teach, you get a tenure position at an institution to teach other people <laughs> just like you how to uh-huh. do exactly what you're doing right now.
0: Uh-huh. Well, I'm curious about what the the students who are coming out of music schools that you're encountering these days, do you feel like it's changing? You feel like some of this is getting through?
2: Depends on the school. Depends on the school. The conversations that I have at Pepperdine mm-hmm. University and the Juilliard School are very different. Like, still to this day, I'll talk to Juilliard kids, and I will say something very simply: you need to look at your music as a product. I know art is art and it's self-expression, yes, but it is also a product because people consume it. And I had a little hand raised from the back of the back of the the room, and it was a violinist, and she was like, "But doesn't doesn't that make the art? Doesn't that tarnish mm-hmm. the art? Doesn't that make it less pure?" And I'm like, and I literally just respond to her I was like how does thinking about how people will receive it make it less pure what, what's wrong with making things that other people might want to listen to because otherwise the, the please excuse my language but mm-hmm. otherwise the process mm-hmm. is masturbatory if you're just doing this for you in front of other people that's kind of weird <laughs> but like it's, you got to you gotta yeah
1: <laughs> we've had that conversation so many times that like there are often experiences we've had on stage like in orchestra that feels that way because it's like who are we really Connecting with here, you know, ourselves, each other on stage. Yeah, who, who is, is this for? for? Who is it? <laughs> yeah, but that's a really valid product market to address fit, yeah. Like it should be on a on a fact somewhere on a website of like how to be an entrepreneurial musician. <laughs> like, but what happens to my art if I try to market it? You know, if I try to create a product out of it, it just becomes a thing that people can connect to better, right? Like that's. Agreed. Hey, I need to make it, a post. Just about giving that. you newsletter ideas.
2: <sighs> I just I'm tired of answering that question. <laughs> yeah. Honestly. I I'm, I'm writing it down right now. I'm writing it down. There right is something now. That's, that's to that, to the, though.
0: I mean, when you're trying to find yourself as an artist, you have to kind of not make things for other people, but like make what you truly believe in. And th- there is a part of the process of figuring out who you are as an artist that is just for yourself, right? Wouldn't you agree?
1: Yeah, discovery. And then maybe yeah,
0: yeah the yeah. discovery, and then maybe the figuring out how other people relate to it, putting yourself out there, and 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 then, and then knowing that it has value, there is something to the creative process that is just like, you know, produce the art and that's the part of the process you mm. can control, right? Produce the art, produce the art, produce the art. And then what you're talking about is the other end of it. Okay. Promote the art, market the art, you know, package the art.
2: Let me be clear about what I'm advocating for. Produce the art. And then just like before you release it, just like look at it again. Just be like, hmm. Uh-huh. Who's this for? Okay. Is there a way that I can not change the heart and soul of it, but is there a way that I can kind of, you know, chisel it down and shape it to where it instead of it just being my pure brainwaves, like put it in a package that other people can immediately hook onto and see, "Oh, I get what they're saying." Because if it's unintelligible, it's not effective, right? If it doesn't speak to something that's relatable, if it doesn't speak to something that we all experience as humans, or if it doesn't it doesn't have to always be relatable either. It could be something brand new. That's that's also valid. I, I've seen art installations where it's like I've never looked mm. at the world that way before. That's wild. But there's all there's always a reference point back to something that I do understand, and I, I think that's where it, that's where things like serialism and atonal music they often lose me. And there's no reason why. I mean, there is a real reason why it's used uh, often in horror. So discomfort because it's just yeah. it's not. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's so uncomfortable.
1: <laughs> yep. We were talking so about the Barber String Quartet and how, you know, nobody really knows the outside movements unless you played it because they're so difficult to listen to. I mean, they're difficult to listen to. My, my quartet was saying, yeah, it's just like nothing compared to the middle movements. And I said, well, you know, I mean, everything has its time and place. Like that was written in 1949. Yeah. I mean, what was everybody going time. through at that time? I bet that music really resonates in certain ways. However, just kind of pull it back to the initial start of this conversation, which is that there is no money in classical music the general like population of human beings out there in this world right now cannot connect to the majority of what we do and it's very difficult yeah you can't just that that's like it is like you guys have just kind of ironed out this two-prong part of the process is like discovering who you are as an artist and your voice and what's important to you and then that you're not done you know, you're not done there. Then there's the mm-hmm. piece of, okay, who is this for? Why am I doing it? What am I doing it for? And what do I want that person to gain from this experience that I'm giving them? Like that is a very important piece that we don't learn how to do. We just don't learn how to do it. And unless you are in and of yourself entrepreneurial and you go out there and you figure it out for yourself, which a bunch of us are trying to do, you know, wouldn't it be nice? That's just the standard.
2: Oh, it'd be real nice. <laughs> the standard
1: of your Your career training was that. It's very (laughs) interesting. Located in a historic mansion in Tacoma Park, Maryland, you might get the impression that the team at Potter Violins are as formal as the breathtaking building that they work in. But when you go inside, instead, you'll find the most relatable, skilled,
0: and friendly staff. Yes. The people at Potter's are what really make it a special place. I love visiting because I know that whoever I work with is not going to make me feel like I'm crazy or just being picky. They're kind of like your favorite bartender. <laughs> They're great listeners who give you what you need without judgment. <laughs> yeah. Yes, their technicians are not only super
1: talented, creative and resourceful, they take the time to collaborate with you so that the process
0: of getting your instrument at its best really feels like a partnership. So if you're in the area, definitely stop by and introduce yourself to Chris, Rob, Kimberly, Derek, Jim, Melissa, and the whole team, or visit potterviolins.com to find what you need online. It's so fitting then that their shop is in this beautiful old house because the staff at
1: Potter's really makes it feel like home. You have this follow-up article, which I feel like we've got to mention. So I think maybe the moral of the story here is for anybody listening to subscribe to your newsletter, because there's some great material on here. Um,
2: Please do.
0: We'll put a link in the
1: show. Please do. Thank you. So you discuss the seven skills every artist entrepreneur has and needs to have. And some of them are just like integral to business, Mm -hmm. things like networking and sales and marketing. Mm -hmm. I love that the first one you put was writing and it also made me go. Oh, I know.
0: <laughs> 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 I literally went. Oh, no. <laughs> <Writing>. I know. Oh, writing, <laughs>
2: writing.
0: That's why the, the the blog page of our website is hidden right now.
2: Me too. Me too. Look, I'm 32. I've been doing social media for over a decade and I'm now just starting to write because I saw a video a couple months ago that changed my world. And they lit the video maker was like, he he was like, there are fundamental skills when it comes to creating content on the internet and just business in general. Writing is one of those indelible concepts. Everything is writing. When you are trying to get investors or donors, you need to write a business proposal, you need to write a pitch deck, you know? If you need to get people to buy your stuff, you need to write ad copy. If you need people to follow you on on Instagram, you need to write your write your captions. If you want people to follow you and subscribe to your YouTube channel, you need to write your script because it's all about how you convey your message. If you can't convey your message in a way that's compelling and gets people to listen, it all starts from writing, and writing helps you collect your thoughts and organize them in a way that other people can understand them. And if you don't develop that skill, like I haven't for so long. Like my, girl, my poor girlfriend, she half the time before I started writing, she was like, <laughs> I don't understand what you're talking about. And I was like, it's in my head. Why aren't you just yeah. reading my brain? And I realized, oh, I'm just not clear.
1: That's, writing helps I, you get I'm more a, clear about I'm an external processor. And so that's true for me too. <laughs> a lot of times where I'm like, I'm like, dude, I'm <laughs> saying a thing. How do you not understand what I'm saying? And then when I write, <laughs> it makes so much more sense because I go back and read it. And I'm like, oh, that didn't make any sense. I should rephrase this. I should rephrase this. And I should- That <laughs> <I> was
2: unintelligible.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, I wonder if, oh, it's so interesting though because I know there are people it's who don't feel co- as comfortable with writing as like, I actually do feel, I feel comfortable with writing, but it takes a lot of energy. That's the problem I have with it. It's like, it takes a long yeah. time to like, I'll just dump a bunch of stuff down and then I have to go back and, you know, re what I'm trying to say and, you know, move things around and whatever. But yeah, I wonder where that skill, like uh, maybe some of us, that skill develops out of necessity though. <laughs> get complimented on my email writing a lot and I'm like I think it's just I think it's just because I I like had to find a way to communicate clearly and this was the easiest way to do it it's good though
2: it's true, but it also works when you're, you're, tr- yeah. you're working as a freelancer. If you write well, you'll build better relationships with your contractors. They're going to mm-hmm. want to work with you if you're concise. It's, it's one of those skills that I said, it has a compounding effect and it stacks upon other skills that you already have or that yeah. you will be developing yeah. in the future.
0: I love that you make it relatable to the people who are coming up in today's world because you know how, how informal writing has mm-hmm. become. Like emails are where texts you once were, you know, texts are like, I mean, some, Sometimes I can't even like understand <laughs> what, what someone's actually because it's so abbreviated. There's no subject of a sentence anymore. It's like so, so informal. Yes. It's just emojis yes. and GIFs. We all have that, yeah. that one friend that all they do is send emojis or like yes. GIFs. Exactly. It's a reference of a
2: reference of a reference. It's the most inside like, of inside.
0: But it is yes. still important that you have these skills yes. because this is how you're going to present yourself in the the world. This is how you're going to market yourself. Yeah, you know, I love that.
1: <laughs> it is. It's really good, and yeah, it, it's inspiring to me because I've been a little bit stuck of like, okay, where on earth do I start? And I don't want to gloss over too. This is a really big pivot, I think, to hear you talk about the social media content and the algorithm game and how yeah. you know you can use social media to build a large audience, but that audience isn't necessarily your audience at the end of the day. You don't own it. Yeah. So mm-hmm. how do you? you get your audience and your answer is to be more personal. I mean writing a newsletter and sending it to people that is a very personal thing. Not that your content online was not personal, of course it is, but it's like fed through the machine as opposed to delivered directly to the person getting it.
2: And that's what I was so excited about it because I, I really feel like my audience has become pretty informal in in the last at least five years um, because I haven't really been I, I look back at my old posts and I, I was writing a lot of like personal stuff in my captions because I and I did that because I wanted people to know me and I wanted people to feel me but when I got a bigger audience I found that you know if I got. I, I don't want that many people knowing something Mm -hmm. personal about me because I made a post. It was after Philando Castile was murdered by police and I made a post called Are You Going to Shoot Me Too? and I got some real racist Mm -hmm. stuff in my comments that I was not ready for at the time and it's kind of like colored my perception of social media that where, you know, I could be me and like people can see me but they see a black man first and then they see a violist and then they see me as a human. And so I'm like, "Mm, I need to change the way I communicate. And so I did for a long time, but it didn't give me the satisfaction so with this newsletter, I really I'm developing systems where if you subscribe to my newsletter, I haven't yeah. done it yet, but I w- I want to tell my story from the beginning. I want you to know who I am, the type of like my fears, my convictions, like what I'm really going for, so you can like trust me and understand where I'm coming from. Cuz I think people they don't really fundamentally know me or my integrity or where I come from as a human being, and I want to develop that more. So that's why I'm excited about the newsletter. And
1: also <laughs> again, that observation just goes to show that, you know, in a social media kind of setting, like, everyone will love you as long as you're posting the things they want to see.
2: Yes. Yes. But, you know, the things that are controversial get the most eyes.
0: I know. I know. That's true. um, We know that from our news media.
2: I don't think controversy is necessarily bad. Like, you guys asked me on here because I said there's no money in classical music. And the (laughs) fact that that's a controversial take is hilarious
0: to me. No, you're just saying the quiet part out loud. Yeah, that's right. Everybody knows
1: it's true. We're just not talking about it. We're dancing around it. And
0: yeah. Like, how am I going to say, how are we going to save this organization? How are we going to save this orchestra? Yeah.
2: Right. Well, let's talk about it first. Yes. Let's not yeah. pretend the house yeah. is not a fire. Yeah. So, okay. Let's just yeah. start. So I don't smell any smoke. It's a fascinating
1: thing to be three <laughs> years out of the shutdown of our industry. And that time was so engaging. And there was so much, I would say, revitalized energy of like, okay, we could do things differently. We can try this. We could try that. We do all this stuff. And there was all this promise. There was all this like idea that this promise that we're gonna do it differently, and now we're gonna bring in the big bucks, and now it's not gonna be a struggle. And I think we're hitting right. a point this season where arts leaders in particular and leaders of organizations and just in general in our field are starting to say, Oh no, it's oh, still just the as pandemic yeah, the it's still just as bad as it was beforehand, even though I'm trying everything I know right now.
2: Part of it is the economics. Like I said, we have to learn business, we have to learn economics. If you are a non-for-profit based institution that relies on donations in times of higher interest rates, in times of economic contraction, when companies' profit margins are receding, they don't have to protect their profits from Uncle Sam, mm-hmm. which means they don't have to donate to you, which yeah. means they have fewer money to donate anyway, which means your salaries, you can't keep them up with inflation. Like, there there's so, there so many things working against us as artists. We don't even realize that we are employees. If you work for these institutions, that have no bargaining power to increase your income. Oftentimes, they'll just cut the size of the orchestra. Right. And I, I, I saw this back in 2011, 2012, 2013 mm-hmm. with the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra. And so, seeing this, you know, 13, 12, 11 years ago, I was like, man, this might not be the game. I might need to go into business for myself because there are too many things that are working against us. So we need to build more skills. That is that is my thesis. That is. Really, what I'm going for, we need to build more skills that give us more autonomy, that allow us to thrive in a decentralized manner away from institutions so that we can perform on our own terms.
0: Here, here. Real
1: quick, you mentioned, I just want to ask this. You said the word unionism once in this conversation, but we kinda like went, we kinda like left mm, it.
2: Yeah, let's put that <laughs>
1: You know, in terms of in terms of how unionism impacts us in a positive or negative way and related to, and this is, this is really what I'm getting at, related to this concept of how we know our value at any given stage of our careers. So we're talking about, okay, you have a kid that is in high school and is tutoring a student and they're making 30 bucks an hour doing it. I'm not charging 30 bucks an hour to teach. I'm never, those days are, I'm not sure those days ever existed, but if they did, <laughs> it was a very long time ago. How do we get to a point where there's yeah. a more universal expectation of the setting of value for what it is that we do? Or is that so individualized that it's you can't quite come up with a system? Like at what point does the system work against us or has mm-hmm. has its own part to play?
2: It's very complex because we're no longer working with the global marketplace. And now the value and like the quality varies. You know, if you're going to Budapest you're going to London or you're going to Melbourne or Sydney, or if you're going to Czechoslovakia or Prague, you have to realize like everybody in the world is now competing Mm. to record for movies everybody in the world is is competing to write strings for big artists so you know i don't think there is a way to like collectively bargain globally yet i think that 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 is what would be required because you know there will always be somebody that will take the gig for a hundred bucks you know there will always be a person who they just want exposure right they just want to say that they recorded strings Mm -hmm. for justin bieber to help them get bigger gigs and Maybe make money down the road, so there will always be those opportunities, and I don't think any one union can can stop it. But I, I'm optimistic that you know if you build yourself a brand that is valuable, that provides a unique value proposition to the marketplace, you won't have to play a commodity game. And I think that is a true conversation: Are you replaceable? The answer is yes. Mm-hmm. Figure out why and fix it, because at the end of the day, like we need to be able to charge more than minimum wage mm-hmm. to be able to sustain ourselves. And not everybody's going to be able to do it and that's okay, but we're all on a journey. And if you're not there yet, if you're still in the commodity <laughs> tier, build your skills, build your moat, make yourself indispensable. And then you will have very different conversations when the time comes.
1: That's great.
0: It's a great, great
1: way yeah, to leave it. Absolutely. Thank you, Drew. This was amazing. Thank
2: you so much for having me. This was so much Always fun. Always such
0: amazing, thought-provoking
2: My pleasure. kind of discourse that we have here. It's good. Absolutely. I really enjoy speaking with you guys. Definitely let me know if you have any like questions or topics. That you want me to talk about on Grace Notes, my newsletter, I definitely want to write this newsletter for people like us who are definitely, we're we're leaving the matrix a little bit and we're trying to forge our own path.
1: (laughs) How can people subscribe to Grace Notes,
2: Drew? You can go to my Instagram at Kid, tap the link in my bio. You can click join my newsletter and put your email in there or you can go to my website thatviollakid.com and click on the Grace Notes tab and put your email there and you'll awesome. get a new email every so Friday. Everybody go
1: subscribe. You won't you won't be you mm-hmm. won't be disappointed. I am thank you again, Drew. <laughs>
2: thank you. Thank you so much for having me, guys. Appreciate you.
1: Thank you so much for listening today. If you loved this episode, consider writing us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, or wherever you listen.
0: Thanks also to our season sponsor, Potter Violins.
1: If you'd like to support the podcast and get access to bonus content, consider joining our Patreon community.
0: You can buy all your musician-centric merch, including shirts, water bottles, koozies, and a variety of other fun items.
1: Our theme music was written and produced by J.P. Wogaman and is performed by Steph and myself.
0: Our episodes are produced by Liz O'Hara and edited by Emily McMahon.
1: Thanks again for listening. Let's talk soon.